I don't know about you guys, it's still kind of blowing my mind, like writing 2013, a new year is upon us. And I thought, okay, a good way to start the new year might be to begin the message with reading our purpose statement. So a uh, little quiz, does anyone know the purpose statement? I forgot the bulletin is printed on there. Anyone got that? Yeah, yeah. Dang it. Okay, that's okay. The purpose of Lettered Street's Covenant Church is to be and make disciples of Jesus who love God, love our neighbors, and care for His creation, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Alright? That's not really that unique, is it? Like, every church should kind of have something like that. You've got a little bit about being and making disciples, about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God. Trinity even makes it in there, Father, Son, Spirit. So it's not very unique, and that's a good thing, because it tells you we are not a cult. Okay? So... While it's not unique, it is revolutionary. Like, think if we actually did that, the world would be a different place. Now, I talk about being and making disciples of Jesus when I read that purpose statement. And let's just define, get our, you know, get our term straight here. Disciples of Jesus are not people who merely agree on doctrines or have faith that people in the Bible had faith. Right? Disciples of Jesus actually trust Jesus. Trust that through his death on the cross they are forgiven. Disciples of Jesus trust that because Jesus rose from the grave, they too will be resurrected to eternal life. And they trust that when Jesus told us to be and do certain things, we ought to be about being and doing those certain things. Now, in Judaism, directly uh, following Jesus' earthly ministry and during Jesus' earthly ministry, rabbis, Jewish teachers, had disciples. And there are many writings, even outside the Bible, in fact, especially outside the Bible, that talk about uh, these rabbis and their disciples. And one of the images we have repeated over and over again is that the disciples talked about getting the dust of their rabbi all over them. They talked about getting the dust of their rabbi on their clothes and in their hair and tasting it in their mouths. They wanted to be close to the rabbi. They wanted to be close to the rabbi. Not just hear what he had to say, but watch and observe how he lived his life. There's these really, some are, some are like really weird. There's this one story where uh, this rabbi has these three disciples and they, they would go and sleep on the floor of his bedroom while he's in bed with his wife. And sometimes they would talk about it, like going into the bathroom and just being like right outside the, the latrine there. That's a little too close for me. But, but the, the idea, you see, is to see their master, their teacher in every aspect of life. To literally get the dust of their feet on them. They're following so close. And I, for one, as I start this new year, I want the dust of Jesus all over me. Do you? Right? I mean, don't you want to know him more deeply and, and, and follow him more closely? I want to be right next to Jesus, to hear him and observe him. Because we all know how much learning is generally more caught than it is taught, isn't it? Learning is generally more caught than it is taught. So I want to be with Jesus. And that's why I'm excited about this new sermon series that we're starting today. Over the next several months, we are going to be on the road with Jesus, getting all dusty from his feet. We're going to be following his every word and his every move as the Gospel of Matthew records it. 
Now, two years ago, we began an exploration in Matthew's Gospel. We walked through all the way from Matthew 1 through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which ends at the end of Matthew 7. Chapter 1 of Matthew begins with these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the outset, Matthew wants us to know, hey, all you that are reading this book, this Gospel of Matthew, I want you to know something. Jesus is the one. He is the rescuer. He's the fulfillment of God's promise way back in Genesis 12. And he is the fulfillment, the heir to the line of David that the prophets talk about so often. He's the one. Later on, we read that this angel comes to Joseph, right, who's engaged to Mary. And he tells him, this son that Mary's going to have is going to be known as Emmanuel, the with us God. God with us. God with who? You might be thinking in Matthew chapter 1. God with who? First century, first century Israelites thought that God was coming to rescue them. And of course he was. But Matthew is telling us he didn't just come for them. If we observe the genealogy in Matthew, we see the foreshadowing all over. There are Israelite male names, as you would expect in that genealogy, but there are also names of women who were not in Jewish genealogies or royal genealogies, okay? And some of these women were not Jewish. And one of these women was a known prostitute. So you've got these interesting names mixed up into uh, Jesus' lineage. And what Matthew is trying to tell us is that, yes, Jesus is the one. Yes, he's the rescuer. Yes, he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies. But he's coming not just for the Jews, but for people you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like Chris Eldridge and like many of you. So Jesus begins his ministry as an adult, and the scene that he is ministering to, the, the context, the culture, it's, it's ripe for a revolution. The Jews and smaller nations were captive to the Roman Empire. They were captive also, not just politically, by their own sin, just like me and you. Uh, they were captive uh, to Satan, the forces of spiritual darkness. And just look how much demon possession and demon casting out there is in the Gospels and in Jewish literature and in pagan literature during this time. There's just a lot of spiritual reality and darkness going on. The people were hoping and waiting for a deliverer. And who is Israel's most famous deliverer? Yell it out. Moses, yes, Moses, the most famous del deliverer of, uh, of Israel, the man uh, appointed and the man empowered by God to bring the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. Moses led those people out into the desert and they wandered for 40 years. They received the law in the desert and they learned to be the people of God. I love that, that wandering in the desert, if you read like, that Exodus period, I think of that as spiritual boot camp. You take these people who were basically steeped in, in pagan Egypt, uh, all they kind of know is that lifestyle, and God is trying to make them into his people. So for 40 years, you basically have to get rid of a generation and, uh, and teach people how to trust God. Jesus leaves, uh, and Jesus 
Matthew 4, Jesus goes to the desert, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. He's tempted, just like his ancestor Adam, and just like Moses and the people of Israel. But he doesn't fail. He's like Moses, but better. Jesus then leaves the desert, begins proclaiming the beginning of what? The kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. He calls people to repent and to trust him. And the tide, with Jesus, the tide is beginning to turn. And C.S. Lewis likens it to spring coming. Like when spring breaks in and you see the buds of flowers, you know that you're probably going to get a couple more frosts. And that while winter storm's going to come, but when spring breaks in, you have hope because you know summer's on its way. We're in springtime. Since Jesus has come, we are in springtime. Jesus didn't just proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, though. He calls people to repent. He, he begins forming a community around himself. He begins gathering students or disciples. And, and then he performs signs of the kingdom. So he's not all talk, and he's not just gathering this, this weird group together. He begins performing signs of the king, kingdom, healings, and casting out demons, and drawing people to himself. So Jesus... The God with us embodies all we are meant to be, but fail to be. He proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of God. He is God's presence. And then what does he do? Moses goes up on a mountain, doesn't he? And Moses receives the law, the Ten Commandments. And then he comes down and presents the law that God gave him. All right, Jesus, think about this, comes out of the desert, proclaims a kingdom, goes up on a mountain. But he doesn't receive a law from the Father. He gives the law. He, he talks about the ethic behind God's law. Jesus is like Moses, but a better Moses. He's one uh, who speaks with authority. In fact, the end of our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount two years ago, it ends with these words. Jesus is on the top of the mountain, has just downloaded this incredible sermon, and the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, and not as their scribes, not as their teachers. No one speaks like this man. Now, are you ready to get, your, ready to get dusty from the feet of Jesus? All right, stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So where we left off, Jesus had just given a law on top of a mountain. Crowds are talking about how he speaks as, one, as with authority, not as their scribes. And then in chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Well, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Oh, Lord, I know, once again, like much of this gospel, these can be familiar words. Oh yeah, that story about the leper. Oh yeah, we know Jesus cleanses. We know Jesus heals. 
Or at least we know we did. Lord, don't let us close these books and just be engaged in an intellectual exercise. Thank you that this story contains good news. Good news that has the power to change our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we need your help to receive it, Lord. Give us grace as we open ourselves to your word tonight. Amen. You may be seated. By the way, if you have a lit background or you know English major, you just like reading, you got to just notice how uh, the genius of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in constructing these these narratives. Listen to this. Back in back in chapter four twenty five, for example, we read that because Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and calling disciples and healing people and casting out demons, crowds were following him. Okay, so now we have this nice little literary bookend. We are reminded of this because now Jesus, uh, we're reminded these crowds are around him again. He goes up on the mountain, blows people's minds with the Sermon on the Mount. He calls people to trust in Him and to live out the ethic of love that's behind the letter of the law. He spoke as one having authority, unlike any teacher that the crowds had ever heard or had ever read. He comes down from the mountains, and again we read the detail that large crowds followed him. And in the midst of a crowd, a most unlikely scene unfolds. A leper approaches Jesus in the midst of this crowd and bows down before him. This could be seen as an act of worship. That, that Greek word to bow down, it can just mean bow down, but it's also the same word that we use for worship. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Where to begin? I'm totally nerding out with all this. Uh, Let's see. I'll begin with a bird's eye view before we go to all the little words and everything. This brief story of healing here in Matthew 8, 2 through 4 is one of ten successive stories of mighty deeds. Jesus does ten mighty deeds in a row when he comes off that mountain. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 have ten mighty deeds in them. Now, you remember that Moses imagery that Matthew's reminding us of with deserts and mountains and laws? Remember all that? Okay, check this out. Wasn't Moses associated with ten mighty deeds? Right? The ten plagues. Only in Moses' case, it was God performing ten plagues, not Moses. And in that story, the plagues were negative. They were curses against the Egyptians, used to judge them for their hardness of heart, and used to coerce them to let Israel go. All right? So Moses, through God's power, does these ten mighty deeds, and they get free from, from Egypt. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus as super Moses. He does the mighty deeds himself. The ultimate deliverer performs ten mighty deeds that show that salvation is breaking in right before people's eyes. Okay, back to the leper. In ancient Near Eastern culture, people operated with different social values than you and I do. One example is that the whole world, to the Jewish mind, and actually uh, ancient Near Eastern mind, not just Jews, uh, the whole world was divided into things that were clean and things that were unclean. Things that were holy and things that were profane. 
Clean things were seen as normal and holy, and unclean things were seen as unnormal or profane. So, for example, I could not be your pastor in the ancient years and world, because when I was 16, I had a bone spur grow up under my great toenail. And it would, if it weren't for modern medicine, where they had to do surgery and remove that, I would have a freaky foot. <laughs> and that was cause, that was cause, that was an abnormality, and I could not enter the temple as a priest. So, thank God for Jesus, and, and I can eat bacon too because of Jesus. That's, that's great. <laughs> Amen. So, uh, so, that is, so it's weird little things like that that c- can cause technically, ceremonially, uncleanness. All right? Serious skin problems were also caused to be labeled unclean. The Greek word lepros, which comes from, uh, from where we get the word leprosy, simply implies scaliness. It also connotes a flaky white texture. So most likely, lepers in Jesus' day were not the same as modern-day lepers. Modern-day leprosy is actually called Hansen's disease. No, no relation to Charles or anything. But Hansen's disease actually causes your nerve endings to numb, and eventually they grow dead, and parts of your extremities can fall off. And it is horrible. And actually, recently, in the last, I think, 30 years or so, there's been a cure for it. But that is most likely not the leprosy that we're seeing here uh, in the Old Testament and in Scripture here in, in Matthew. Modern-day lepers, uh, uh, you know, that, that we don't have much evidence that that was what they were talking about. What we do know is that it was probably just a, a white, freaky skin condition. And there are four major causes of this, and one is just extreme eczema. Uh, But the leper in Jesus' day was most likely inflicted with a skin condition that wasn't physically contagious. It It wouldn't cause you to die, but you're labeled ceremonially unclean. And actually, in a way, that could be a condition worse than death. Because what happened to an unclean person is they were excluded from community. It was illegal for a person with leprosy to enter into a walled city. Well, any city of any significance was walled in those days. And think what else had walls? The temple of God. You could not worship in the temple. You couldn't bring and make sacrifices to God. So basically, if you were announced unclean, you were thought of as cursed. You were thought of as outside of God's people. The reason I asked Jeff to read from Numbers 12 is because we have an example of God being angry and cursing uh, Miriam with leprosy. And so people read that story and they said, well, if you are a leper, then God must be mad at you. I I don't think that's very good exegesis, by the way. But it's just what happened. People, People would read into that and say, well, you're leper, you must be cursed by God, you're outside of our community. It was like being dead. In fact, it was, people used to call them the walking dead, kind of like the TV show, you know, and they, they don't eat your brains or anything. Okay, so now that we have a little bit of background uh, on the social stigma against lepers and how lonely it might feel to be one, let's revisit the story. There's a crowd around Jesus as he comes down from the mountain. Now, this man obviously knows that Jesus is a holy man because he approaches him respectfully. He bows before him and calls him Lord. Amazing. Just an aside, when I was reflecting on this text, I was thinking, what kind of male reproductive organs this man must have had? What kind of audacity? 
he must have had... To, okay, this guy can't be in community. He can't go in a walled city. He's, rabbis were supposed to be six feet away from a leper at all times. And a leper was supposed to dishevel their hair. And, um, and, and whenever they were passing a normal person, they had to put their eyes down to the ground and yell, unclean. You've probably seen depictions of this on TV or something. Unclean, unclean. This guy so desperately wants to see Jesus, so desperately believes Jesus can actually do something for him, that he risks all of that and goes into a crowd to be near Jesus. Doesn't that kind of challenge you a little bit? And then I got to thinking, wow, you know what? This guy actually, he didn't actually have much to lose. What are people going to say? Get away, leper? Like his whole life they're saying get away. I mean, maybe, maybe someone will throw rocks at him, but no one wants to touch him because they would get unclean. It makes me wonder, am I seeking Jesus with such passion? And you know what? It makes me also think, I actually have a lot more to risk than the, the, the leper. You know, sometimes seeking Jesus with all my heart will mean I will be at odds with people that I really like. The leper, he maybe not, didn't have any friends, maybe leper friends, you know, from his, from his group. But The leper probably didn't have a great source of income. But sometimes following Jesus, actually all the time, it causes you to, to think twice about whose money that really is that you have. How, how badly do I want it? How badly do I want to be like Christ so I want to follow Christ? Anyway, the leper makes me think just by his audacious move to go through a crowd to be near Jesus. Now pay attention to the leper's words. Lord, it's a term of respect. If you are willing, which means... I'm not demanding anything. I don't hold any claim on you. I'm not putting in an order at a drive-thru miracle machine. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, that's humility. You can make me clean. That's faith in Jesus' ability to act and to act with great power. This request strikes me as extremely healthy because it seems to me that most often... You and I see extremes of this man. Either you hear TV preachers sweating and demanding the Lord Jesus would do something, and they pull scriptures out of context and say, I demand that you do this. Right? That's one extreme. Or we see the other extreme, which, yeah, I'm not really sure you even heal anybody anymore. I'm not even sure if you're real, if the, who, how we even got this scripture, but I guess we'll pray because we're a church and we're supposed to do that. And we pray with no faith. It strikes me that this man, the leper, was really healthy in his approach. Respectful Lord. Humble, if you're willing. Faithful, you can make me well. That's a nice little mixture right there. Of course, the other side of faith is that Jesus sees the big picture and we don't. I mean, let's be honest. How many times, uh, for every time I've prayed for healing for someone and they've been healed, there's been 40 times where, you know, it's not God's timing. It's not, it's not what, what's going on right now. But what we can have faith in is that God does what is best as he sees it. And he sees the complete script of history, and I do not. 
If we truly mean, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, then we must recognize that his timing and his ways are not, not always our timing and our ways. So somehow, this unclean man has made it through the crowds and walked right up to this holy man, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Gosh, if he was a modern-day popular preacher, he'd have bodyguards who would have tackled that dude like 50 yards out. And then he would have gotten his helicopter and done the service from up in the east. No, skin. Does he blast this man verbally? Because, you know, the crowds are all going to... They're looking at this and they're thinking, what is, is this Jesus now? He's been saying some cool things on that mountain. But let's see what he's really like. Okay, because here's this leper. Whose side is he going to be on? You know, so Jesus could, could verbally blast this guy. Get away, unclean person. You're making these crowds unclean. You're going to defile me. Of course, Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you're cursed of God. Jesus heals the man. But more than that, Jesus touches the man. Now think about that. This man, since he was officially deemed a leper, has been outside the worshiping community, outside the healthy community. We don't even know. It, it, it could have been years since this man has had human touch, contact with anyone deemed normal or healthy. What does that do to a person's outlook on life? And you and I both know that there's all kinds of different sicknesses. And a lot of times we have wounds and scars on the inside that don't show up as flaky white skin. And you and I have all, you know, we've, we've been on the outside looking in. We felt like outsiders in certain circles of people. And maybe you struggle with that in your own context, in your own circle. I think to some degree we all have experienced a little bit what it's like. Jesus touches the man. He doesn't just heal him. Dale Bruner says that this, this would have been a completely different miracle if Jesus would have just said, be cleansed. It would have been a great miracle. But this is a different miracle because Jesus touches the man. In Greek, hypsato means to grip to grasp, to cling to. Jesus didn't just be cleansed. This man had never been touched before, you know? And, uh, and I imagine it something like be cleansed. You know what I mean? Something powerful about human touch. Not magical, but powerful, inclusive. It communicates so much more than the words. Jesus satoed this man to grip, to grasp, to cling to. He gripped the leper and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Now, this is the cool part. Do you see what happened here? For anyone else but Jesus, touching a leper would make them ceremonially unclean. The leper was contagious in a bad way. You touch them, you're unclean. And there's a whole ritual you'd have to do. Go outside the camp for seven days, shave your head, wash yourself, make sure you don't contract anything, go show yourself to the priest with the sacrifice, and then only after the priest says you're clean can you re-enter society with your shaved head that has to grow back 
however long that takes, and you know how people were about their hair and beards back then. It would be lame. All right. Brian, how naked would you be without that mustache? I mean, would, that's what I'm talking about. So that's normally what would happen if in public you touched a leper. But Jesus gripped the man and he turns the tables on this whole system. When Jesus touches you, he makes you clean. He's contagious. He infects you with holiness. It's a living lesson that Jesus shows us that cleanliness, holiness, is not about the externals in life. It's about how we treat others in God's image. And don't try, you know, the, the Samaritan thing, well, well, who's made in God's image? Everybody's made in God's image. Jesus performs a mighty deed in healing the man's skin condition. But almost more powerfully, he touches him and seeks to restore the man to community. That's why he tells him to go present himself to the priest. It was the priesthood who could inspect him. It was the priesthood who would declare him normal again. It was, it, then everyone would see his, his paperwork. He would be officially part of the worshiping community again. Jesus' healing is great, but it's not, just, it's not just making him free of a disease. It's bringing him back into community with people. He'd have to give testimony and a sacrifice as Moses commanded. And they'd let him back in the community. But of course, he'd be different. He'd been touched by an encounter with Emmanuel. And he'd never be the same. Jesus tells this guy, Tell no one, go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus doesn't want fame for this kind of thing. He's not ready for it in the beginning of his ministry. In other stories, when Jesus performs mighty deeds, people try to make him king. They try and hail him Messiah. But Jesus knows that these titles are loaded with people's false images of what a king ought to be or what a Messiah ought to be. And Jesus is saying, hold the horses. I don't want your titles. I'm here to tell you I'm more than you ever expected. He knows that if he allows people to make him in their image... They'll never know who he truly is. What an amazing story, right? Getting a little bit of the dust of Jesus' feet, kind of observing from 2,000 years out what went on. And I see at least three implications. Not, I don't want to say applications. Implications. What is the text implying we do? How do we respond? So here's three ideas you might think about. One. Since the very first generations of the church, in fact, uh, there's a writer called Pseudo Origin who wrote uh, about this text, and Jesus is teaching Matthew 8 and 9, and they see Jesus being on the mountaintop with his teaching, and then they see Matthew 8 and 9 being in the valley with real people with real problems. And what Suda Origin talked about is we need to live in the tension of those two things. That we need to be on the mountaintop sometimes with Jesus. Uh, John 15 says it so well. You need to abide in Jesus. He's the true vine. Because when you, only when you abide in him can you bear much fruit in your life. So that abiding, that mountaintop, that Sermon on the Mount experience, we need to be, you know, in his word. 
and in prayer and in community and worshiping community together. That's the mountaintop. But we also need to be down in the valley. Like we can't just spend time in our prayer, praying all the time or hanging out in our little Bible studies or just doing those things as good as they are. We need to be engaged, right? Bringing some of that Jesus touch to people. And you know that grip of Jesus, it isn't just touching people. In fact, that might be quite inappropriate for certain people. But your an acknowledgement of people's existence is maybe a touch that people need. The second implication I see here is that holiness trumps uncleanness. Holiness trumps uncleanness. If you're a follower of Jesus, I, I'm not making this up. This is Paul's words, Paul the Apostle. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, more often Paul talks about you, plural, are a temple of the Spirit, the church. We as a community are to reflect holiness. You bring the Lord with you. Like if he's in you, doesn't that, I know that's elementary. If the Lord is in us, then wherever you and I go, Jesus is there. And if he's contagious, if the stuff that he touches becomes holy... Boy, that makes sense. Then the stuff you touch, the lives you touch, are blessed by holiness. Are you, like, I'm just saying that. I know that's obvious from Scripture, but I'm saying that because I don't often live it, and I'm the talking head up here. So I imagine it's tough for you, too, to remember that in your workplace, you, Jesus is there. He's with you. And, and in, on the bus, and at school, and in the, the market, and at the gym or at the pub, or wherever it is, the coffee shop, you know, you, you, you don't get defiled by what goes on on the outside. You bring holiness to it. And I wonder how we might think when we're in those situations in our everyday stations in life. I wonder if we might be better at thinking about, wow, how could I be a blessing here? You know, that person that bugs the heck out of me at work. I don't have anyone like that. I work by myself. But, but I used to. I used to live on a ship with men. Okay, I was on the Coast Guard. So, uh, but there's always somebody that bugs you. Everybody's got a story, right? There's a reason why that person is such a jerk. <laughs> if you bring holiness into that situation, what does it look like to maybe be a little understanding about trying to learn someone's story, about trying to get behind the picture? So, the second thing, holiness trumps uncleanness. The third thing is just a simple question. Have you been gripped by the good news? Have you been gripped by the gospel of Jesus? Have you been seized by the good news that no matter how unclean you feel, how far outside, however despicable, however defeated, have you been gripped by the good news that Jesus is willing, he's willing and able to touch you, to bring you back into his people, into his community, into his family. I mean, brothers and sisters, is it not true that we are our worst, our own worst enemies? We think, certainly, grace can't be that good or that available for me. 
Because other people don't deal with the same sins I, I deal with. Other people seem to get over their problems and I'm just stuck in the same cycle. Certainly, grace isn't available for me. I must have to do more to receive it. I challenge you, and I'm challenging myself. I'm challenged, I shall say. Think on the leper's audacity. We don't even need to run through a crowd to get to Jesus. He's here. He's saying, come home. Be gripped by my rescuing hand.